in Proverbs chapter number 22, I really thought I was going to move on from the edge pieces of dispensational salvation. And really, in, in one sense, we kind of are. The, the, the message today is, um, is going to be about the tribulation period, and that is the edge piece number four of what we've been talking about the last three or four weeks, and this is part number four. And there's so much to cover. I started looking at the tribulation period, the rapture, the millennial reign of Christ, and I really desired to try to condense everything into today's message. And the more that I tried, the more that I found out this is impossible. And so while this is part four of the edge pieces of dispensational truth. In reality, this is just lesson number one on the tribulation period. Because I think, let me, let me take that back. I am convicted that we need to refocus on some end times prophecies. I don't know if I said that right, but I think you know what I'm saying. Because of what's going on around us. We need a reset button in our thinking and how we perceive the world around us. And the reset button is to focus on Bible truth and an understanding of what's going on around us and an understanding of what's getting ready to happen here on planet Earth. And so we're going to talk about the tribulation and millennium. And um, I'll tell you what specifically we're going to be talking about in today's lesson after we read our text. Proverbs 22, and start. Uh, let's begin reading in verse number 17. Bow down thine ear, and hear the words of the wise, and apply thine heart unto my knowledge. For it is a pleasant thing if thou keep them within thee. They shall withal be fitted in thy lips. Why? Verse 19, that thy trust may be in the Lord. I have made known to thee this day, even to thee, have not I written to thee excellent things in counsels and knowledge? Now watch verse 21 with me, that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mayest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee. Lesson number one, I want to talk to you about the wisdom of certainties. And I'll explain it here in just a moment after we ask the Lord to bless the message today. Heavenly Father, it's good to be in your house today. It's good to worship you. It's good to sing songs about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to glorify you and to thank you. And Lord, uh, it's good to fellowship with one another. Lord, we ask now that the Holy Spirit of God would bless us and anoint us as we bring the, the certainty of these words of truth to the congregation today. I ask, Lord, that hearts would be open. Uh, Lord, I pray that there'd be uh, no distractions that would keep us from hearing. Lord, I pray that uh, the children and young people would be quiet and attentive. And I pray, Father, that any distractions would just be removed so that we can focus in with clarity on what the Word of God has to say to us today. Lord, we pray that Jesus would be glorified. We pray also that if anyone under the sound of our voice is not saved, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would use the words that are spoken 
to convict a heart, to, to, to lead a person to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Have your will and way, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, folks, there are many things about the tribulation period and future prophetic events that we are uncertain about. And I say we, I, I, have to, I think I can represent every pastor, every preacher, every missionary, every Christian, every person for that matter. There are things about upcoming future events that we are uncertain about. Preachers, teachers, authors, etc., have much debate over details of the end times. You know, even those who believe in the infallibility of the Scriptures, as we do, and even those who rightly divide the word of truth disagree over some of the fine details. You know, there are some questions that people ask. First of all, is the church going through the tribulation? And when we say, is the church, I I would ask that question uh, not just with the church in mind, but with myself in mind. As a Christian, as part of the church age, the body of Christ, am I going to go through the tribulation period? It's a legitimate question. Uh, the next question, is the church going halfway through the tribulation period? That seems to be kind of a popular vogue uh, teaching in modern times. And, uh, I, you know, I'm not necessarily going to refute that today, but I think that you'll see um, certainly throughout these lessons that... Um, that is uh, not not the case. Uh, the next question, is the tribulation going to be seven years or is there only three and a half years of it remaining? Has the first three and a half already taken place? Uh, there's a well-known Bible teacher who put out a thesis on that and I, I happen to be in the middle of studying that out and trying to sort through some of uh, what I would see as plausible arguments and then as I think, well, that's plausible, but what about this verse? What about this? What about that? And so I'm still in the process of just seeing where this particular Bible teacher is coming through from. But I will say this, that um, there were some things that certainly provoke me to thought. How about this question? Where is America in Bible prophecy? Have you ever asked that question of anyone or even of yourself? You know, we know a lot about some of the kingdoms of the Gentiles. We have uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision, and we have the vision that Daniel had, and the vision that John had of the different beasts and so forth, and the 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 ten uh, the ten uh, seven headed dragon, and the the ten um, the ten toes on the the image, and so forth. That all have representations of kings and kingdoms, and we wonder: Is any of those talking about America? You know, I um, not long ago after 9-11 when the Twin Towers came down, there were all kinds of theological studies and books written that, uh, that were trying to show how the, the Twin Towers and that whole incident was actually in Bible prophecy. And I watched those videos and I didn't read all of the books, but I kind of looked at the passage of Scripture and I thought, ah, you know what? That's kind of a stretch, and, and you know, it, I'm not saying that it's not possible. I'm just saying that, you know what, that'd be kind of hard to really nail that down based upon the verses that are being used. And I, I found with prophecy, 
that there are some very intelligent and many of them very sincere Bible teachers that are able to, to connect the dots. I guess with our study, they're able to put some pieces of the puzzle together that uh, less intelligent men like me aren't able to just process all these massive amounts of information and put this verse and this word together. And I appreciate those kind of men. And while that's a gifted mind that enables them to do that, I've also noticed in my ministry that many of those same gifted men are able to put scriptures together that don't belong. Their strength becomes their weakness. They're able to see things that the rest of us aren't necessarily going to see, but they're also able to see things that aren't necessarily there. And so we have to sort through that. And by the way, as a believer, we are supposed to judge what is being preached in a church service. And if you read a book, you're supposed to judge that. And that's why it's so imperative that we study the Bible for ourselves, that we become students. And and, and listen, when it's all said and done, and I've said it time and time again, and I'll repeat it today, this book is the final authority. I'm not the final authority, you're not the final authority, your favorite preacher, your favorite Bible college, your favorite guru is never the final authority. I, uh, I was thinking about some of the things that I believe and teach and how that it's been a work in progress over the years. And I, I see some things today that I didn't see 10 years ago. And God's corrected me in some areas. I've had some things that I believe from the Bible because I was taught it from good men who were also Bible believers. But then I'd come across this and study it for myself and go, well, you know what? That debunks their theory. And so I got to go with what the Word of God says. Even if I'm wrong, don't you think that God's going to hold me accountable for, for what I'm personally seeing from this book? Rather than just being, I'm not saying we never follow men, but I'm saying that we never blindly follow men, and we never follow men because of social pressure or peer pressure or fear that someone's going to turn on us or dislike us. We need to be honest students of the Scripture with integrity. And so these questions, how about can we find the date of the rapture? Boy, that was a big one back in the 80s. If you've been saved for any length of time, uh, 88 reasons why the Lord's coming back in 88. Boy, that book caused a lot of confusion and a lot of problems in churches. You know, there were church splits over People in the congregation, somebody who read that book and they tried to get the preacher on that bandwagon and the preacher said, no, I'm not getting on that bandwagon. And so they thought, well, we've got to enlighten all this congregation because our dumb, ignorant, blind pastor won't enlighten them. And so they'd go get everybody on their bandwagon and guess what? The Lord didn't come back in 88. And so the guy had to write a book, 89 Reasons Why He's Coming Back in 89, sell some more books. So for me personally, I was a young preacher when all that happened. And if I can make a confession here this morning, when it comes to Bible prophecy, when it comes to focusing on the imminent rapture of the church, it discouraged me greatly. 
And um, I don't know, to be honest with you, I don't know that I'm fully recovered from that. I need to get that zeal back, don't you? I need to get that zeal back that, hey, the trumpet could sound. I used to think about it all the time. You know, I, I, can go, I can go weeks without thinking about the rapture until I come home and all of the cars are at home and I can't find my wife or my daughter. <laughs> Funny, they never, when I'm supposed to be home, they never have those thoughts when they can't find me. <laughs> I'm just joking. But the reality of it is, is these questions and these uncertain things. Let me get on with my notes so I don't uh, get off track too much. There are many complex studies in the Bible that reveal hidden truth. I believe that. The problem that I have observed in my ministry is that prophetic studies too often lead into division and confusion. And folks, that's a fact. That is an observable fact. That doesn't mean that Bible study, finding those hidden truths of Scripture is the wrong thing to do. By all means, I am not saying that whatsoever. I just have observed a consistent fact that more often than not, these things lead to division and confusion. Doctrinal divisions and contentions have existed in the church from the very beginning. We know that. We read about it in the book of Acts. We read about it in Paul's epistles. But the problem is not that there are debates and contentions and divisions, but the problem is the nature of today's divisions. You see, you've got teachings that are published that are really, in all honesty, unnecessary. They don't edify And they only result in debate and division over some obscure texts and personal personal speculations. And so it's the nature. It's not, listen, uh, if a book published that shows the virgin birth of Christ causes division and contention, so be it. If a book published on the deity of Christ, or the things, the doctrines that are absolute, salvation by the blood of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection, and so forth. There are so many truths that are absolute, they're not obscure, they don't require this this, uh, highly intellectual, detailed connecting of dots, it's just absolute slam dunk. Hey, when those books are published... When those sermons are preached, if contention is the result, then the person doing the preaching or the book writer is not the problem there, folks. In my opinion, my opinion, that's all it is, folks. Many intelligent authors seek to impress rather than to edify. I've at least began reading many, many a book that I just never finished because I thought even if this is true, it just, it doesn't edify, it doesn't matter. I've got too many more important doctrines that need to be preached and many more important books that I need to be reading. You know, Paul knew, Paul knew when 
and to whom to withhold knowledge and truth from. You read 1 Corinthians and you find that there, Paul said, hey, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He said, I have fed you with milk and not with meat because you weren't able to handle it. And he said, you're still not able to handle it. So here the Apostle Paul, his motive was not to try to impress people with his knowledge because you know what? If you were in the place of the Apostle Paul, he had knowledge that the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that God hadn't revealed to anybody else. But Paul didn't get all excited and puffed up over that knowledge. Why? Because God said, I'm going to give you a thorn in the flesh. And I guarantee you, every time that Paul had just an inkling of this, you know, and by the way, every human being has an ego, right? You know what? Can I be honest with you this morning? I like compliments, don't you? Compliments can be a great encouragement. I, I sometimes, sometimes a compliment, at, you know, from the right person at the right time can be, man, it can, it can help a person. It can get you out of the dumps. It can, uh, you know, get you back on track when you've been discouraged and despondent and so forth. But I've also noticed that sometimes those compliments can be so, um, so, um, desirable and so liked that if you're not careful, you'll start doing things or as a pastor preaching things in hopes of getting a compliment. You know what that is? That's just human nature. We have this, this treasure in earthen vessels. Paul had the same ego. But Paul also recognized that, hey, if I, if I allow my ego to be inflated because I just told Christian something that only I know, only that I've discovered, then God's just going to, he's going to sick that messenger of Satan on me and I'm going to have to suffer for it. So Paul knew and understood that, hey, to impress God's people is a worthless endeavor. Paul said, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. Paul knew and understood the people to whom he is ministering. And just like our voting problems in America today, the the world has become a much smaller place. And we're able to publish and distribute books. We're able to publish blogs on websites and internet searches. And we're able to take... Our teaching, in fact, even this morning, what is being preached to a local congregation is going out over live stream. And so we've got part people of our congregation that are listening and tuning in, but it's also available to people. And there are many people that tune into our preaching that I don't know and they don't actually know me. So there's absolutely no way that I can know if what I'm teaching and preaching, if they're ready or able to handle it. And there's so much of that in America today. Have you ever noticed that the divisions in the average Bible-believing church today didn't just happen on a local level, they happened because some internet guru 
somebody got a hold of their blog or their book and they started reading it and they decided that they were smarter than their pastor and that they needed to lead the flock and enlighten them because the pastor was not doing his job. And what happens? You end up with division over a doctrine that really doesn't even matter in the whole scheme of things. Have you ever thought about this just from a rational mind? All the contention that goes on among Bible-believing churches today. Are we going halfway through the tribulation period? Are we going all the way through? Are we going to be raptured out of here before the first day of the tribulation period? Hey, I got news for you. When the trumpet sounds, every born-again believer is going up. And you know what? Whatever, whatever happens, if we miss the boat on our prophetic understanding, hey, just hang on and wait for that sound. And when the trumpet sounds, you, you won't have to flap your arms. You won't have to do this to try to be more aerodynamic. You're just going up. If we dated that, even listen, even if we dated the rapture, you know, it's one thing to say, well, the Lord's coming back in 2025. You got, you know, we got four years. But even if we said the rapture's taking place tomorrow, how does that edify? If we believe that the rapture's taking place tomorrow, I guarantee you, though it would affect the way that we live our life, and more often than not, probably not in a positive way, but rather in a negative way. And then all of our loved ones that were saying, you've got to get saved because the Lord's coming back tomorrow. And then when He doesn't come back, guess what? Our credibility is shot. The hope of edification over some of these detailed speculative doctrines, the hope for edification is so minute but the risk for confusion, debate, and division is huge. Why would any caring pastor and preacher that just wants to serve the Lord and edify God's people, why would we run that risk with some um, minute doctrine that God showed us? Knowledge is a good thing, but there are some serious scriptural warnings that accompany it. 1 Corinthians chapter number 8, verse number 1, Paul said, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Hey, listen, if I'm going to teach these minute, prophetic, speculative doctrines... I better make sure that that's a side note. If I'm going to major on doctrine, if I'm going to major on the things that matter, I better major on charity. Hey, if I preach truths, if my, the truths that I preach are harder than the heart that I love with, then my ministry is not going to be effective. Do you know that the truth can be spoken and any truth can be spoken in a manner to where people are going to naturally want to reject that truth. <laughs> you know, you can say the same exact thing one way, and people just put up, and it can provoke them to resistance, 
And you can say verbatim the same thing in a different way, and it'll draw them in. It'll draw them in. Do you know that you can tell people, you can warn people and tell them that they're going to hell and not be offensive while you're doing it? I've been around Christians. I've went door knocking with people and heard people warn people and say, you need to be saved or you're going to go to hell. And that's true. But the person that's listening, you just met them. They don't know you from the JW that knocked on their door yesterday. They don't trust you. They don't know. I mean, they don't know. You can say that, hey, I love them or I wouldn't be doing this, but they don't know that. They just know that you have a rotten spirit and you just acted like you were mad at them. So just because something is true doesn't mean that it's always going to edify in its given context. But boy, if a man loves God, it's going to be known. You know, there's, there, there's a book that ought to be published, How to Love God. That'd be a great one. I'd, I'd be interested in reading that one. Romans 14, verse number 19, the Bible says, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. Remember, I'm talking about how that knowledge, doctrine, that there is always some Bible, not disclaimers, but some uh, scriptural warnings that accompany it. In 2 Timothy chapter number 2, verse number 24, Paul says to a young preacher, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. You know, one thing that I know that um, earlier on in my ministry, I didn't always know how to come across. And, and I'm not saying that I figured it all out now. But I will say this, that I have learned from experience that it's, it's really unnecessary and futile to try to manufacture results. I've seen preachers that were very good at manipulating results. Get your emotions all stirred up. Get you crying. Get you laughing. And boy, at the invitation time, your emotions, he's, he's had you on a string. And he can get you to the altar. And he can get you to make a decision. But you know what? If you responded to the preacher and not to the Holy Spirit of God, you're going to walk away just as confused as you were before. Actually, you're going to walk away more confused because nothing truly happened in your heart. And you're going to say, well, I prayed and I asked the Lord to save me or I asked the Lord to forgive me, but no real change happened on the inside. And so that's the devil's, uh, that's the devil's garden right there. All he has to do is start tending it and he can grow all kinds of doubts and fears and confusions. And so striving, trying to get people to, to, to bend to the will of the preacher, it's futile. And God says that's not what we're supposed to do. Put the information out there. Do it with love and compassion and charity. And then get out of God's way. 
God may not answer that prayer. He may not give you fruit for your labor right away, but God will bless it when we honor His Word and we do His work His way. Knowledge needs to be accompanied by charity. The truths that we believe and teach and are passionate about need to be the things that will edify one another. Do you know in chemistry, and I'm, I'm not a chemist, but I read about this, that in chemistry, they will take volatile substances such as water. You know, water, water is a volatile substance. If you leave water in a container outside for a couple of days, what's going to happen? You're going to go out there if there's been any sunshine. If it hasn't been raining and adding water to that, you're going to go out there and you're going to find that your water's, you're losing it. It's leaving the bucket. Why? Because it's volatile. It's subject to its surroundings and its circumstances and it won't stay the same because of the circumstances. So in chemistry, when they take a volatile substance like that, they do something, this process that's called co-crystallization. And in many cases, they'll use halogen gas in order to create this uh, process of co-crystallization. And what happens is the volatile liquid is now stabilized into this crystal. It'll stay the way that it was the way that it was yesterday. It'll stay the same regardless of its environment. And then later on, they can take with a simple solvent extraction and they can reconstitute that volatile substance back into its original form. You say, what does that have to do with the topic at hand, preacher? Well, you know the Bible is referred to as the water of the Word? And the water of the Word can indeed be a volatile substance. And it can be used in different ways, and it is affected by its environment. And that's why, let me just say this, as a pastor, that's why it's so imperative as God's people that we don't just have Bible truth preached from the pulpit, but rather that we have Bible truth lived from the pew. You know what that does? As you and I, as we are living righteously and we are worshiping and loving the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens is that, that you have an environment where the truth of God's Word, where the water, that volatile substance, can actually soak into the hearts of people. Many church services, I guarantee you, across America today, probably better Bible truth is being delivered from the pulpit than what I've ever imagined from this pulpit. And yet in many cases, that truth is going out there and it's just falling to the ground because the people there's not an atmosphere there's not a heart that wants to receive that truth of God's word yes bible truth can be very volatile we need the stabilizing process what is the stabilizing process it's called charity and um, everything that we do and everything that we teach we should ask this question is this filled with charity does this truth edify? In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 3, Paul said, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, 
when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions. Notice that Paul's telling Timothy there's, there are just certain things that you shouldn't even teach. Why? Because they're just not worth it. They do nothing but minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. And then he says, so do. This is what you need to do. Godly edifying which is in faith. Now, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Now, I realize that in modern Christianity today, endless genealogies are not an issue. If you were in the early church and you were around uh, people that were Jewish, then certainly those uh, trying to study their genealogies and their tribal descent. And, hey, Paul said, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And I guarantee you that to some people, genealogies are important. But really a modern, and, and I think this isn't a stretch, this is an equivalent. You know, much of the prophetic studies about the tribulation and the rapture and so forth trying to extract what Daniel 9 is really saying and meaning, so much of it is it hinges upon the historical secular record of history. When exactly was Cyrus king? When was Artaxerxes king? What was the date? Because we're trying to figure out what was the date when uh, when Messiah would come. What was, what was the date when Messiah was cut off? and not for himself? When when is going to be the end of that time? When is going to be the abomination of desolation? And all of these things, we'll see them in, in weeks to come. But so much of it hinges on a date that is not necessarily, we don't have any absolute way to know if the recorded date is accurate. We have to depend upon men like Usher, or men like Josephus, or someone, and, and they may or may not be right. But if we're hinging what the Bible says on the secular record, then we're really, we're taking a big chance. We may be teaching something that's just not right. Now, I've taught things that weren't, weren't accurate or truthful. And when I discover that, you know what I do? I try to correct that. But the bottom line is we need to avoid these endless genealogies and these things that minister questions rather than godly edifying. Notice also how that in this passage of Scripture, that Paul is not only admonishing Timothy as the teacher or whoever's teaching to avoid these endless genealogies, he's also admonishing the listener. Verse 4, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies. So there are certain things that we just need to, yeah, if you want to read that book, if you want to look at that hypothesis and that theory, all right, read it. But don't start getting too revved up about something that you don't know is absolutely true. If we have something that is um, the certainty of the word of truth, Hey, I don't know about you, I have too many areas in my life of certainties of the words of truth that I'm falling short in, that why would I, why would I start living my life and letting some 
prophetic doctrine that may or may not be true affecting my life when I've got all these other certain things that I'm falling short in? I think it would be more edifying to just start focusing on what we absolutely know. And then if we want to be interested and speculate and find some intrigue in those things, okay, fine. Just don't base your life or your actions on it. Bottom line is, um, and let me remind you that Paul knew and understood many things that he didn't always teach. Bottom line, doctrinal truth is for edification, not for ammunition. That's a pretty good quote, don't you think, if I do say so myself. I didn't mean to be profound. I just think that I've observed that. People who, boy, they find all these deep doctrines and it's just ammunition so that they can win an argument, feel superior, or like I found something that you didn't find. And listen, that is not the purpose of Bible doctrine or prophecy. When I was a young preacher boy in the mid-80s, Brother Runyon, this is where I met Brother Wilson, by the way. We would go to a King James Bible Believers Fellowship. And here, I'm just in my early 20s. I'm just learning the Bible for myself. I'm all excited about God. And we'd go to these Bible Believers Fellowships where the men were all just very, very unapologetic defenders of the KJV Bible. Uh, Many of them believed in right division and were dispensationalists. And there was a group of preachers, and I I don't even remember all of their names, but I remember sitting in several different of these meetings right up toward the front where I always did, and uh, some of them were so biblical. I mean, they just, we believe the Bible more than you do that they started calling themselves bishops instead of pastors. Now, I read the Bible. Do you know that in the Bible a pastor is referred to as a bishop? But let me ask you a question. Is being more right than everybody else and starting to call yourself bishop, does that edify or does that cause confusion? What do you think of when you think of a bishop? I don't think of a Bible-believing pastor, do you? I, I don't think that God used the word bishop in the New Testament because it was a big deal that you labeled yourself this terminology. But boy, it was a big deal to these guys. And they'd get up and they'd say, this is what we're going to do. And they would make it like that you're a Bible compromiser and you're not a real Bible believer if you don't do the same thing. I remember as a young preacher just sitting here and they'd say that and then the next preacher would get up and refute them. And the whole thing, the conference, instead of it being edifying, it just became a bunch of arrogance of preachers bickering about who's right. And here I am, a young preacher, and, you know, it discouraged me, it frustrated me, because I would travel, I would take time off from work to try to get something from the Word of God, and I'd sit here and watch grown men act like a bunch of babies. And I think, how sad that is. These men are intelligent men, and some of them are just really spend 
thousands of hours studying out the Scripture. But if the heart and the motive is not right, if it is not with edification and charity, then it's of no value whatsoever. Folks, I'm about out of time here this morning and I just got through my introduction. Hey, I told you, I mean, I really, there's just no way that I could say what needs to be said about this topic because, listen, the tribulation period and uh, the rapture, it causes so much contention and division. And really, the things that I said here this morning, without, this is the preface to these Bible studies. And if we don't get that, then you know what? It really doesn't do any of us any good to understand the rapture, the tribulation, if we don't know how to appropriate it in our life and to warn others about the things that are going to come. And I believe that they are just around the corner, don't you? I I, I feel confident. I feel more confident than I ever have this past year that we are in the last days and the mystery of iniquity is working and it's working overtime. I mean, we are seeing right before our very eyes God sending strong delusion, not only in America, but in the entire world. We're seeing strong delusion, people that are believing a lie and rejecting the truth. Hey, some of our men were down, uh, we, were, we were on street ministry yesterday, and I, I wasn't with this group, so I heard about it afterward. They're standing there holding gospel signs, and somebody drives by and rolls down their window and says, y'all are going to hell. You scratch your head, it's like, God's going to put us into hell because we're telling people about His Son? That doesn't make sense at all, does it? But that is one extreme example of the strong delusion that we're seeing all around us today. Hey, how can men of God, people who profess to be called of God, to preach the Word of God, how can they stand in pulpits today and not bring the Word of God other than the parts of the Bible that match up with their pop psychology and their motivational speaking? How can a man of God with integrity, not ever call out sin from their pulpit? How can they ever not preach against the perversion of homosexuality? How can they not ever preach against adultery and divorce and all those things that are just abortion? All of the things that are commonly accepted. Why would we be surprised that the lost world doesn't see anything wrong with those things when the supposed body of Christ doesn't seem to see anything wrong with it either. How many preachers will stand behind the pulpit today and and say that Jesus, you're not Christ-like if you preach against those sins that I just named? You know what we have here? We have strong delusion. And my burden, my burden, yes, I'm looking forward to talking about the tribulation period and the rapture. I'm looking forward to showing you from the Scripture at least what I've seen and what I understand. And hopefully I'll be, if if not totally accurate, I hope I'll be close enough. 
But you know what? The bottom line is we've got to understand that there are some things that matter more. And if, and if we're just going to use it to feel superior, to feel like we know something that somebody else doesn't know, if we're just going to use it to impress or to win an argument, then of what value whatsoever is that? You know, Jesus, he's, he hardly ever defended himself. You know, there were times when he told, he, he told the Pharisees what for. He warned them, no doubt about it. But when they personally attacked him, when he was at the cross, when he was at the pretrial of the cross, you know what he did? He just looked at him and didn't say a word. Did not even utter a word. Brother Sharp was talking to us yesterday and talking about Joseph and how that Joseph was a great man of God and that God blessed him and he proposed a question. You know, what do you think that after Joseph became the second ruler of the land, what do you suppose Potiphar was thinking? What do you suppose Mrs. Potiphar was thinking, the one who falsely accused him? What do you suppose they were doing? And how do you suppose that Joseph handled that? And I thought about that while we were praying, and I just I, I had to give my two cents worth afterward. And I thought, you know, if I understand the nature of Joseph as a character that God reveals us, this is how I think Joseph handled it. I think that he never said a word about it. He just left them to sweat it out the rest of their life. I guarantee you, you know, just like his brothers were sweating it out. He never said anything and they just continued to sweat. He let them produce their own misery, their own punishment, if you will. You know what? God's looking down from heaven and he sees all of the works of the children of men. He knows our heart. He knows what's going on in America. He knows when he's getting ready to say to that angel, blow the trumpet, it's time. I think it's soon. All of the signs point to that. All the Bible prophecy, it sure appears to me like the prophecies that need to be fulfilled before the rapture takes place, they've all been checked off of God's calendar. So it sure seems to me, folks, like we're getting closer and closer and closer This is from my heart, not from my notes, because I I planned on going a whole different direction here this morning. But if you're like me, this past year, it's been a struggle. It's been frustrating. I've struggled with despondency, with just being apathetic. I've had a hard time getting any, any energy in my spirit, any zeal any passion. It just seems like that the circumstances around us just keep pressing us down and we just don't know what tomorrow holds and we're just annoyed by everything going on around us. How many of you agree with me? You know, we're all going through the same thing. But I'm convinced that the spirit of Antichrist is, is helping to cause that not only with the circumstances around us, but I do believe 
that the spirits, the principalities and powers of the air, that they work on our lives, they work on our minds, and they work on our hearts. And Satan's doing everything he can, brothers and sisters, to just keep us pressed down and keep us in this mode where we won't, where we lose our fight, we lose our passion, we think, what's the use? Why witness? Nobody's listening. What does it matter whether I go to church? What does it matter whether I continue to do this and that? You know what? We've got to wake up. We've got to wake up because our redemption draweth nigh. You know what? Brother Ben's a runner. Uh, I, I admire him. I, I, I wouldn't say I envy him because I hate running. But I admire him for it. And, and there's been times in my life where I wish that I like to run. I've tried to like to run. And it just doesn't work for me. But you know what? In times in the past when I have run in a race, in a sprint or whatever, one thing that I have learned from any competition, from any race, your last lap, needs to be your best. And you know what? There may be people that are faster, more gifted, and they may cross that ribbon before you and I do. But let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, just keep taking another stride and another step. When you feel like you can't run anymore, walk. When you feel like you can't walk anymore, get down on your knees and crawl. When you don't feel like you can crawl anymore, get on your belly and just scoot a little bit. But don't quit. Keep pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Because our redemption's drawing nigh. And folks, it's not time to quit. It's not time to back off. It's not time to worry about what's going to happen to America. Are the Democrats going to uh, attack us? It's not time to worry about blue lives, black lives, any lives. It's time to just worry about what our Savior thinks. And He's worth it. Wouldn't you agree? Jesus, all that He's done for us, He is worthy of us giving Him our very, very best. Not what I planned on saying to this morning, but I hope that it's been a help to you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your blessings. We thank you, Lord, for the certainty of the words of truth. Lord, we pray that you would take the things that uh, we've seen from the Word of God, uh, the things that you placed upon our heart, and Lord, I pray and trust that these things have had an edifying effect. Lord, that we would use knowledge aright, that, Lord, all of our knowledge and understanding of the Bible would not puff us up, but rather that it would, uh, we would use charity so that we can edify one another. Bless us, we pray. Help us through this despondency. Help us to awake to righteousness. Help us to realize, Lord, that we are definitely getting closer and closer to the time where we see your precious face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Ushers will dismiss.